In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 18. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. We're excited to present Chapter 1 of Dear Laura this week. If you're a Season Pass 16 member, make sure you refresh your feeds for the standalone episode of Chapter 1. And if you're listening to the traditional feed, Chapter 1 will be featured at the end of this episode. We hope you'll be captivated by this first of six chapters. And while Dear Laura is not a particularly graphic story, it does contain some disturbing themes. This is a good time to remind you that, when needed, we provide trigger warnings for each episode on our website, with links in the show notes to where you can see them. So, plenty of great tales this week and Chapter 1 of Dear Laura. We're proud to present them to you with respect. Now, I should explain something that happened on episode 17. While I was putting that episode together, I had a phone call with Joanna. We were discussing how to handle the stories which we've been encountering, the ones with that almost electrical buzz around them, which compels us to to choose them, to tell them. While on that call, a story just... I, I don't know how to explain it. It just seemed to insert itself into the episode. I don't even remember introducing it. It came from a rather ghastly collection of cookbooks written for... Well, there's no other way to say it. For cannibals. Joanna and I both felt that book calling to us, but we had no intention of doing anything from it on the show. But now, with stories seemingly having some sort of power to tell themselves, and even impersonate Peter Lewis while doing so, this has caused our saga to take a disturbing turn. I don't know. At this point, well, it's starting to feel like it's the beginning of the end. I can't explain it fully, neither can Joanna, but something is happening. We can feel it. So, understandably, in the midst of all this, Joanna told me she was trying to get away for a short vacation, clear her head a bit. She was looking at places to stay north of New Jersey. She told me that while looking on a website for accommodation reviews, recommended to her by Lisselle Jones, she felt that tingle again, that electricity. It was while reading the reviews for a particular property that it felt the strongest. She asked if I could enlist the help of Nicole Doolin, Graham Rowett, Jessica McAvoy, Sarah Thomas, David Alt, Aaron Lillis, Atticus Jackson, and Peter Lewis to help me convey this odd series of reviews for you. 
So here is a rather trippy experience from the trip review entry for the Hempel Observatory Holiday Rental, New York State, USA. Overview. One bedroom, one bathroom, two guests, no pets. The Hempel Observatory is a beautifully restored early 20th century property set in scenic forestry around 30 miles south of Niagara Falls. It offers discerning guests luxurious and secluded holiday accommodation with exceptional views across woodland and a private lake. The building has a unique imposing style and is of great historic interest. Construction of the observatory commenced in 1918 by Henry Hempel, owner of a successful local clockmaking business with a keen interest in astronomy and architecture. Henry put his heart and soul into the ambitious design, but tragically was unable to continue with the work and the building stood incomplete for a century. Happily, the observatory has now been sympathetically converted by the Hempel Estate into a delightful one-bedroom holiday rental that's ideal for honeymooners, stargazers, and dreamers, or any couple looking for a decadent getaway. Guests should be aware that some work is still ongoing as we endeavor to have the great observatory mechanism fully operational in the near future. About the owner. The Hempel Estate. Languages spoken. English. Listed since March 1921. Property Reviews. Mary Ann Foster, Buffalo, New York. Reviewed on the 30th of April, 2019. Just heavenly. Five stars. My husband and I were honored to be, I believe, the very first guests at the newly opened Hempel Observatory. I have to say it's amongst the top five luxury self-catering accommodations we've stayed at. Pros. First, the location is simply stunning. A scenic off-road track through the woods leads to the property, where we were rewarded with impressive views of the observatory in its completely private lakeside setting. Words cannot do justice to the unique style of the building. I'm no expert on architecture, but believe it's a fascinating combination of Art Deco and Neo-Gothic, an octagonal two-story brownstone tower that brings to mind a miniature version of City Hall in my hometown or one of New York City's iconic skyscrapers. The interior was spotlessly clean with tasteful decor that's in keeping with the building's period, whilst including all mod cons. The second floor is taken up by the luxurious bedroom and bathroom. The domed ceiling in the bedroom is a particularly notable feature, decorated with a fascinating starscape that was very conducive to a peaceful night's sleep in the comfortable bed. Cons. It's hard to find fault with such a wonderful property. However, communication with the owner, who we never met, was somewhat impersonal. Nevertheless, everything had been thoroughly thought out, and we felt that help wouldn't be an issue if a problem had arisen. 
Pete, 1989, Longmont, Colorado. Reviewed on the 17th of May, 2019. Great experience. Five stars. Loved our stay. Decided to treat my partner to a birthday weekend here because he's into astronomy and historic buildings. The property certainly lived up to the stunning photos on Trip Reviewer. It's a great place to hang out and we really enjoyed the private walking trails in the woods. Everything was clean, comfortable and well-equipped. Gary was a bit disappointed that it wasn't possible to see the top floor and the telescope and we couldn't even find a way up there. But we had such a great time that it didn't really matter. Oh, P.S. Trip Reviewer folks, your details say the property owners, quote, listed since March 1921, unquote. Get it fixed. Lady Katie, Rochester, New York, reviewed on the 24th of May, 2019. Horrific. One star. Where do I begin? I can't believe we stayed in the same place as the previous reviewers. First, the dirt track to the place almost destroyed our Escalade. When we finally arrived, it was getting dark and the building looked like something out of a horror movie. Really creepy and weird looking in a way we didn't expect. The interior was absolutely filthy, covered in dust. The furniture's horribly dated, not antique chic like the places we've stayed in at the Hamptons, but just plain old and musty. The electricity supply was dangerous and the lights kept flickering. The TV didn't even have Netflix and there were no USB charging points. We tried to call the owners to complain, but surprise, surprise, there was no cell service so our iPhones didn't work. We felt so fed up, we went to bed early. However, we couldn't even stay a full night. It wasn't the damp smell or the horrible lumpy bed, although those were bad enough. It was the sounds in the building. Loud ticking noises from the roof that started in the middle of the night and never stopped. So freaking noisy and annoying. Even our Earworms brand earplugs couldn't block it out. I don't know if they have some big old clock up there or what, but the owners need to fix it right away. Lucky for us, home was only about an hour away, so we were able to pack up and leave. I wish I could upload the photos we took so you can see how bad this place really is. But looks like we deleted them from our iPhones by mistake. My advice? Avoid this rental. Owner's response. We're sorry to read about your disappointing experience. Please contact us and we will gladly arrange a refund. Global 344. Salisbury, United Kingdom. Reviewed on the 10th of June, 2019. A hidden gem. Four stars. Stopped here for a couple of nights on a road trip between New England and Niagara Falls. It's a beautifully restored property and in great condition. No problems with cleanliness, electrics, or things that could tick in the night. I suggest you ignore the previous review. It contains so many inaccuracies and downright lies, I believe that the author might have a personal grievance against the owner. The special atmosphere of the Hempel Observatory could be wasted on those who don't appreciate architecture, but history lovers such as myself will be utterly enthralled. Some people can only see the bad in everything. CT, Columbus, Ohio. Reviewed on the 25th of June, 2019. A nightmare. 
one star. We don't recommend this rental and wish we'd read all the earlier reviews more carefully. The place is a lot less fancy than the photos make out. No way it's been recently refurbished. Yeah, the design of the building is interesting, I guess, but it just looks wrong. Like it belongs in a city, not in the middle of nowhere. The scale, the proportions, the tone of the stonework, something feels off. We are no believers in hocus pocus, but from the moment we walked through the door we felt like someone was watching us. We've read horror stories about spy cams and holiday rentals, but this was way more uncomfortable and we just couldn't relax. And there is a problem with the ticking noises in the night. I tried to put up with it at first, but it got unbearable. My fiancé's hearing isn't great, so it didn't wake her straight away. But it did give her the worst nightmares she's ever had. She wouldn't even tell me what they were about. Then it sounded like there was something else moving around in the roof space too. Maybe lots of things? I gotta confess, we freaked out and got out fast. Ended up staying in a motel back on the highway. So much for our luxury getaway. We returned to get our things the next day, and to be honest, it didn't seem so bad, but we couldn't risk another night. Very negative experience. Pity I can't find my photos to show you, and if Trip Reviewer allowed me to award zero stars, then I would have done. Owner's response. We're sorry to read about your disappointing experience. Please contact us and we will gladly arrange a refund. Eldon and Audrey. New Orleans, Louisiana. Reviewed on the 26th of July, 2019. Warning. Sight of an inexplicable personal tragedy. One star. I think it's best to start this review with a brief introduction. We're semi-professional paranormal investigators. Google Eldon and Audrey Haunted Hotel Inspectors for more info. And so this won't be a conventional trip report. I should also warn readers that it contains some disturbing details, which I've included in the hope people will heed my warning to stay away from the Hempel Observatory until a thorough investigation has been completed by independent researchers. A few months ago, a follower of our YouTube channel pointed us towards the weird reviews the observatory has received on here. We're always on the lookout for sites that haven't been investigated by others yet, and after researching the history of the observatory and its original owner, we knew we had to visit. Surprisingly few details about Henry Hempel are available to the public, given that his company, Northeastern Clockmakers, was responsible for building several municipal and privately owned clock towers in the region around the turn of the 20th century. Hempel's designs varied according to the various commissions, but commonly drew negative public opinion due to their unsettling, gothic sensibility. Most have been replaced over the years, which may explain the lack of documentation. The best source of information regarding the observatory we found was, bizarrely, a record of a legal dispute between Hempel and Ronald Trent, the previous owner of the lake adjacent the site. Trent objected to the construction because he believed it contravened county building code and also detracted from his enjoyment of fishing. 
The impression I got was of a petty dispute between two wealthy, stubborn landowners that had escalated to the stage where nobody except lawyers would really win. Most of the legal issues don't seem important, and Hempel eventually purchased Trent's lake and land after winning the case. However, the papers do cast some light on Hempel's motives. One of Trent's main arguments was that Hempel's building was intended to cause a personal grievance and serve no practical purpose. The construction made no sense from an astronomical perspective. The locations had a relatively low elevation amidst dense forestry in an area that doesn't have a climate conducive to clear skies. The roof of the building even lacks a proper aperture for a telescope. Trent, a devoutly religious man, claimed that the purpose of the building was, in fact, unholy, having heard strange sounds coming from it at night. He even hired an authority on the occult as an expert witness to support his case. I'm quoting the relevant part of her testimony here. Declaration of Edwina Werner in the matter of Trent versus Hempel at the United States District Court for the Western District of New York, December 1918. I, Edwina Werner, hold a diploma in history from Radcliffe College, Cambridge, Massachusetts and have held the position of Senior Lecturer in Folkloric Studies at the University at Buffalo for the past seven years. I am the author of over ten books on esoteric matters, astrology and alleged occultists, including biographies of John Dee, Leonardo da Vinci, and Isaac Newton. In the course of my assignment as an expert retained to provide testimony, I conducted interviews with builders and engineers who worked on the construction, now paused, of the purported observatory adjacent Delvers Lake. Although access to the site was denied, and no design drawings of the interior of the building are publicly available, I have gleaned sufficient details of the internal mechanisms and certain other features of the construction. My opinion, which I maintain with a reasonable degree of certainty, is that Hempel's construction is an attempt at a meloscope. The meloscope is an obscure astrological apparatus, first described in papers belonging to an anonymous 17th century alchemist. Its alleged purpose is, I quote, to gather and observe pure darkness for the exquisite sensations and learnings to be found therein. The design of the telescope is similar to a conventional telescope in some respects, and comprises a large tubular body. However, instead of lenses, it houses a reflective black membrane. This is believed to operate as a scrying surface a medium well-known to occult practitioners for developing extrasensory visions. The scope is also connected to a set of bellows, whose function is supposedly to mystically draw particles of darkness from the ether into the body of the device. The presence of these features in Hempel's design strongly suggests that it is a meloscope rather than an astronomical telescope. Hempel's apparatus does differ from the original telescope in some aspects. First, 
The gathering end is oriented downwards into the enclosure, rather than towards the heavens. The component that corresponds to the eyepiece is oversized, of an irregular shape, and seems only capable of projecting onto the ceiling of the enclosure. It's therefore unclear how whoever it's designed to be used by would be able to observe anything. Hempel's construction also appears to be augmented by an intricate clockwork mechanism that is not part of the original design. My interviewees were unable to provide precise details of these components. However, from their descriptions, my view is that they may function as a clock drive for positioning the device. These 17th century drawings of the Meliscope are notoriously unclear and include symbols and measurements that, as far as is known, have never been properly deciphered. However, the writings that have been interpreted indicate that the Meliscope is only capable of operating under certain very precise conditions. These timings, which are based on the celestial positions of specific constellations, are arguably the main similarity the Meliscope has to a conventional telescope, but are more in the realm of astrology than astronomy. Historically, the precision required would have been difficult to achieve, and so I postulate that Hempel's mechanism is intended to address this problem. In conclusion, my strong expert opinion is that the evidence points to Hempel's construction being a version of the arcane astrological device known as a meliscope. To avoid any undue concern, I would also emphasize that there is no historical or scientific evidence that the meliscope is anything other than an irrational, fabulous construct. It was probably intended to be metaphorical rather than embodied as a physical contraption. Further, even discounting the fantastical aspects, there would be insurmountable practical obstacles in successfully implementing the apparatus, such as the need for certain rare earth materials not readily available at this time. After learning about Hempel's astrological leanings and researching the telescope further, Audrey and I were able to deduce a pattern in the dates of the negative reviews. They matched astrological events called zodiacal cusps that corresponded to the operating conditions of the telescope mentioned by Werner. The ones still due this year were on the 23rd to 24th of July, September, and October, dates to which a minority of astrologers ascribe dark associations. We booked two nights at the observatory on the July dates. Our theory regarding the dates of the negative reviews was confirmed when we arrived. Although we consider our investigative trips part-time work, we do usually feel some vacation-type excitement when we first arrive. Not here. As we approach the observatory, our moods flattened for no apparent reason. As I'll detail later, we experienced strange and tragic events at the property and believe these affected our electronic equipment. None of our cameras, still or video, saved any images, just like it happened to previous reviewers. Audrey's handwritten journal explains how we felt after arriving. 
July 23rd, 3.30 p.m. Arrived at earliest check-in time. Picked up keys from safe spot. The whole booking process has been smooth. Almost automated. First impressions. The property looks neglected, and we're surprised to see crumbling masonry and cracked tiles. But it isn't that the pictures on Trip Reviewer have been photoshopped. It's more like a darkening filter is somehow being applied to the building in the real world, giving it a subtly unreal contrast to its pretty surroundings. Inside is unnaturally dark, too, and again, although the furniture and fittings appear to be the same as the ones in the photos, it looks like they've aged unnaturally and are covered with prominent scratches, peeling paint and grime. EM and temperature readings normal. 5.15 p.m. Finished installing sensors and cameras at optimal locations. No activity, and all readings normal. However, the YouTube content we tried to record will probably be unusable. We felt utterly unable to summon up any of our usual light-hearted commentary and banter. We just silently, kind of mechanically, went about our business. Both of us in a dejected, touchy mood. Several petty squabbles about when to eat, where to position cameras, etc. 8 p.m. No camera activity. Readings normal. Although technical issues with PIR camera 3 and upstairs EM sensor. Both of us reporting growing lethargic, negative feelings. Decided to leave recording for YouTube until tomorrow. I can't believe Eldon's attitude, though. I know our relationship's been going through a bit of a rough patch recently, but ever since we arrived here, he's been worse than ever. I think he wants to give up on our channel. Says he's sick of YouTube, the endless striving for followers, the constant need to produce contents becoming an endless hamster wheel. I can't let that happen. I need to leave this until later. Those were the last words Audrey wrote. We listlessly watched videos on our separate devices in bed, and it was almost midnight when the ticking reported in the reviews began. We'd read about how loud it was, but nothing prepared us for the reality. A deafening, heavy, tick-tocking rhythm. It was as if the sound was hovering inside the bedroom, not coming from above the ceiling. The ticking was soon accompanied by the sound of smaller gears, clicking, grinding, ratcheting. More and more of them. It sounded like millions. We had to cover our ears. I nodded towards the stairs, but Audrey shook her head. Looked like she'd regained her drive to experience something truly supernatural. She'd always been more hardcore about the spooky stuff than me. We fumbled with our phones to try to get some footage, but my fingers were trembling too much. This is when things got really strange, and I advised discretion about reading on. The noise was too loud to get close to the ceiling to investigate, so we just lay on the bed. I toughed it out, pushing past discomfort to a point where the sound resonated through me. My whole body vibrated with each tick. I was flooded by a feeling that wasn't exactly calmness, but I became still. My heartbeat and breathing kept time with the ticking. Even my thoughts felt synchronized with its rhythm. I managed to glance at Audrey... From the regular rise and fall of her chest, I guessed she was experiencing the same thing. A creaking noise joined the clockwork cacophony, 
and a split appeared in the center of the domed ceiling. Its two halves slid open like a giant eyelid. The aperture revealed a vast mass of clockwork components wheeling in blackness. A sprawling cosmos of spinning, twitching gears, spindles, and cams that should never have fitted inside the dome. At the center of the movement, a huge, cannon-like cylinder hung down. The Melescope. My eyes fixed on the dark glimmer inside it. It reflected Audrey and me lying on the bed. Veins in our necks and arms visibly throbbed in time to the mechanical beat. When I should have been fearful and concerned for us, what I actually felt was a creeping sense of disgust. I couldn't help it. Couldn't think any differently. My attention fell on Audrey's reflection and involuntarily focused on insignificant blemishes that used to be invisible to me. The tiny chip in her front tooth, the blurry edges of the black rose tattoo on her forearm. They'd become mountainous, magnified flaws that spawned physical repulsion. The expression on her face told me she felt the same about my image. At that moment, it made me hate her more. The shimmering membrane rippled, and other images began to overlay our reflections. Flashbacks to arguments, failures, disappointments, carouseling scenes of anger, jealousy, infidelity. I couldn't tell whether the images were memories, fantasies, or fears, whether they were even mine or hers. The Melescope's bellows started to move, laboriously at first. Throughout all this, my eyes and mind remained fixated on the images flaunted by the screen. They forged a burning coal of resentment in my chest, which felt like it had been torn out, as if the device wanted to inhale it, consume it, appraise it. As the bellow sped up, the melescope began to swing like a pendulum between Audrey and me, hypnotic and threatening. I sensed the malice the device was engineering would destroy me if I let it continue. With all my will, I fought the clockwork's control, twisted and pushed against its relentlessness. I managed to tilt my head towards Audrey. The sight of the real her melted something inside me. I stretched my fingertip a fraction towards her hand, but she just kept glaring at the images, kept pulsing with hate. The melescope stopped right above her. Its bellows wheezed and blasted frozen air. Through the corner of my eye, I saw Audrey's skin shrivel and drop like a shroud around her leaving a solid black shadow of her body. A mainspring shot out of the clockwork, wrapped itself like a chameleon's tongue around Shadow Audrey and plucked her into the whirling mechanism. It wound and pulled her through its gears like a rubber dummy. She made no attempt to resist, and I'm still haunted by my final glimpse of her darkened face as she vanished into the innards of the machine, vacant but spiked with hate. The gear's teeth crushed and grated, and a dark oil spilled out. It oozed over the tangle of springs and wheels before being funneled into the barrel of the melescope. The mechanism halted with a reverberating clunk. Each of its countless gears blinked like an eye. As I screamed, I realized that the melescope's hold on me was broken. I scrambled to the floor, and as I bolted out of the room, I saw the pale casing of Audrey's body dissolve on the bed. 
Outside, it seemed like a normal early morning. After catching my breath, I grabbed a heavy rock and ran back into the building. No sign of Audrey. I beat the bedroom ceiling with the rock until my arms ached, but it was solid metal and I couldn't even dent it. All my attempts at getting into the dome had been futile. I've contacted the local police, but they're skeptical and to date have refused to take the matter seriously. They suspect we're trying to pull some kind of publicity stunt for our paranormal channel. Of course, the Hempless State have ignored my calls and emails. I'm seeking legal advice, and I put this review up here in the meantime in the hope it'll deter others. I know it all sounds ludicrous, and have little hope that the majority of readers will believe any of this. But the fact remains that at the time of writing, Audrey has been missing for three days. She hasn't been in contact with her family for years, and isn't at any of the obvious places I've searched or contacted. But I won't give up. Owner's Response We're sorry to read about your disappointing experience. Please contact us and we will gladly arrange a refund. Unfortunately, the Hempel Observatory is now temporarily closed to visitors for essential operations. Eldon and Audrey. Location unknown. Reviewed on the 23rd of September 2019. For my Eldon, from your midnight flower, Audrey. Zero stars. This place holds only darkness. In this place, no sun shines. No man smiles. From this space, I see into your true heart. Your rotten core splayed to display your failings. Your slackness. Your inevitable surrender. Follow me. Be apart, not apart. Let me tease out your emptiness and roll it in invisible fingertips. Let innumerable eyes gaze into nothing but all you lack. Eldon and Audrey, New Orleans, Louisiana. Reviewed on the 25th of September, 2019. What's going on? One star. I don't know who's responsible for that last review, but it wasn't me and it isn't funny. I don't even know how we're even able to review an inactive property. But I'll use it as an opportunity to update and repeat my previous warning. The Hempel Observatory seriously needs to be investigated, and people should stay the hell away. Audrey's still missing, despite all my efforts. She's not the kind of person who'd just disappear, no matter what problems we were having. They really weren't that serious. The only good thing is that the observatory's been closed off with some heavy-duty security, so there's hopefully little risk to the public. I sought help from some of my contacts in the paranormal field who are no strangers to getting into out-of-bounds places, but even they weren't able to get anywhere near. So it looks like I've reached a dead end. Police and private investigators have gotten nowhere. No meaningful replies from the estate or their lawyers. I'm losing hope. I've even started doubting my own sanity, but I know what happened that night. I also haven't found any more information about Hempel or his designs. The few records indicate he vanished from public life sometime in the 1920s after becoming increasingly angered by critics of his work. I'm coming to the conclusion that he was simply like his sick project, something that just didn't belong and best forgotten. And whoever wrote that last review... You need to stop stalking me. 
I don't know how you found that private reference you put in the title that only Audrey and me knew about, but I'm not in a good place right now, and you won't like what you find if you keep it up. Owner's response. We're sorry to read about your disappointing experience. Please contact us, and we will gladly arrange for you to revisit the Hempel Observatory so that we can alleviate all your concerns. Eldon and Audrey. Location unknown. Reviewed on the 23rd of October, 2019. Enmeshed in the dark observatory. Zero stars. In the dark observatory, we look down on the world and see only weakness and fault. From the dark observatory, we reach with our eyes to grasp at that which remains when joy is lost. In this place, we have no choice but to choose this truth, to spin endlessly in cold nowhere. From this place, we see no horizon, no light, no stars. Business travel, airports, shuttles, unfamiliar cities, and unpredictable hotels. You'd think most people would hate staying in those hotels, but you don't know Jack. Jack travels a lot for work, and he really enjoys his time in those hotels. Or, well, he used to. As explained by author Christopher Maxim, Jack could have had a pleasant experience at this one hotel if he only followed the rules. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Kyle Akers, Graham Rowett, Wafia White, Jesse Cornett, Nicole Doolin, and Nicole Goodnight. So let's be honest, it's not a difficult thing to ask. Be a good guest, be respectful, and follow the rules. That way, you will enjoy your stay at the Covenwood Inn. Business trips are dreadfully boring, especially in my line of work. The only good thing about them? Hotels. The tedium of day-to-day dealings bookended with clean towels and a mint on my pillow. <laughs> if I could live in one, I surely would. There's just there's something in the ambiance that soothes my soul, for lack of a better phrase. At least, that's how I felt until staying at the Covenwood Inn. It seemed like any other hotel at first. Typical floor plan, decorative arrangements, overly polite check-in clerk. It wasn't until I received my key card and ventured up to room 371 that I would notice a dissonance in the layout, something amiss that broke up the usual hotel landscape. In my room, placed deliberately on the bed, was a sheet of paper. Restrictions printed on an official Covenwood Inn stationery. Room 371. Guidelines. 
Number one, no television after 9 p.m. Number two, only accept incoming calls on the room phone. Number three, leaving your room between the hours of 10.30 p.m. and 1.30 a.m. is strictly forbidden. Number four, at least two to an elevator at a time, never go in alone. Number five, no visitors. If there's a knock at the door, ignore it. Number six, the minibar is for emergencies only? Number seven, the view is a lie. Don't trust it. Enjoy your stay. Okay, that was odd. I had never seen anything like it, not once, in any of the hotels I'd stayed at in the past. Perplexed, I called the front desk for answers. All rules are to be followed during your stay. The clerk stated this plainly, as if he had uttered it a thousand times before. I I don't understand. What emergency would warrant the use of the minibar? Why can't I watch TV after nine? What does the view is a lie even mean? I was offered the same reply as before, spoken with the same tone as before, not unlike a recording. All rules are to be followed during your stay. (sighs) And that was that. No answers, no explanation. Assuming it was some sort of strange hotel humor I was unfamiliar with, I threw the list on the bedside table and forgot all about it. Until later that night. As I laid in bed watching the 10 o'clock news, something completely out of the ordinary happened. The reporter began scratching at her face. A little at first, but then a lot. Her motions became aggressive, and her skin began peeling. Blood dripped from the wounds as she continued to relay her report without missing a beat. No one seemed to notice or react to her appearance. Eventually, she froze in place and stared at the camera. Then, a close-up of her face, grotesque and mangled. Her bloodied lips spread apart and offered an ominous sentiment. Don't break the rules, Jack. I jumped out of bed, left my room, and ran downstairs. My voice echoed through the lobby as I barged over to the front desk. What the hell is going on here? The receptionist didn't so much as blink at my intrusion. What can I help you with, sir? I just watched a news reporter tear her own face apart and tell me, me personally, to follow your bizarre hotel rules. Is this some kind of a sick joke? He pointed at the wall clock behind him. It's 1018, sir. In room 371, there's no television past. I grabbed him by the collar. I don't appreciate being toyed with. Continue this jest and there will be a call made to the authorities. Mark my words. I let go of him and stormed off, his monotone voice trailing off in the distance. All rules are to be followed during your stay. I returned to my room, shut the TV off, and laid down to sleep. Pissed off, but exhausted. Unfortunately for me, my slumber would be short-lived. I awoke later that night in a fit of sleep paralysis, pinned in place by my own body. At the foot of the bed was a shadowy figure, whose features I couldn't quite make out in the darkness. A warmth overtook the room as it stepped over to my side. My heart began to race. 
Closer now. I could see it was a man. Maybe in his fifties. Well-dressed. Gray mustache. He leaned over to me and spoke with a disturbingly unnatural timber. His voice echoed off the walls and met my ear with an inhuman cadence. It's a pleasure to meet you, Jack. Are you enjoying your stay so far? I tried to break free of my chemical restraints, but it was no use. Where are my manners? I'm Garrett Covenwood, the owner of this here hotel. I like to greet my guests whenever I can. He rested his hand on my arm. There was a stinging sensation where his skin met mine, but I could barely wince in response to the pain. Follow the rules, Jack. If you don't, you're in for a bumpy ride. All at once, the warmth dissipated, and the sound of my cell phone buzzing rendered me fully awake. I jolted to a sitting position, reclaiming my movement. The man was gone, and my arm was fine. Thank God. It was just a nightmare. I quickly grabbed my phone and answered. It was my boss, Coulter. Hey, Jack. There's been a change of plans. Need you down the lobby right away. What? What for? No time to waste. Hurry up. I looked at the time. It was 12.36 a.m. I was forbidden to leave my room according to the damned rules. I called the front desk. Now listen here. I need to come down to the lobby and meet my boss. I don't care what your rules say. There better be no weirdness. Do you hear me? The sound of tapping away at a keyboard filled my ear. Sir, our records show that your boss, Coulter Brumlock, is fast asleep in his room. Confusion washed over me. In his room? Asleep? How would you even know that? Wait, are you telling me there's no one in the lobby waiting for me? No, sir. It's a slow night. Just me and the fern in the corner. I hung up the phone and dialed Coulter's number. After two rings, he picked up. This better be good, Jack. I was sleeping. Coulter, you didn't just call a moment ago and ask me to meet you downstairs, did you? He let out a groggy sigh. Uh, Of course not. What are you talking about? Can I go back to bed now? Another wave of confusion struck. Sure, sorry. It was probably a wrong number or something. I'm sorry to wake you. Before hanging up, I asked him one last question. Say... You didn't get a weird list of rules from the hotel, did you? No. Now let me sleep. He hung up, and I sat there contemplating things. Honestly, it felt as though I was hanging onto my sanity by a single, fragile thread. I had told myself the images on the TV were the hotel's doing. But this... This couldn't be faked. Coulter and I had known each other for years. I knew his raspy voice anywhere better than I knew my own. That was definitely him on the other line. But at the same time, it couldn't have been. It was, by all accounts, a mystery. The next day of work came and went. Before long, Coulter and I met back at the hotel where we dispersed to our separate rooms. What was once the highlight of any given business trip was now tainted by uncertainty. For a good long while, I just sat there, in bed, still in my work attire, 
perusing the list of rules on the bedside table. I couldn't make any more sense of them than when I'd arrived, but it had become abundantly apparent that something was going on, something unexplainable. Part of me hoped it was just the product of a tired mind, overworked and succumbing to the side effects of exhaustion. But lies, even the ones we tell ourselves, only stretch so far. I undressed and climbed beneath the sheets for some much-needed rest. Rule number five came to mind. No visitors. If there's a knock at the door, ignore it. It felt silly, but I did as the rule demanded. Best to act with an air of caution, I thought. Better safe than sorry. The knocking, however, was soon followed by a voice. Coulter's voice. Jack, are you in there? Your wife called me. Says she couldn't get through on your cell. Something happened to Leslie. Oh, my heart sank. Leslie was our daughter. I jumped out of bed, ran to the door, and opened it at once. Coulter walked in, visibly troubled. What's going on? What happened to Leslie? Coulter bore a look of deep concern. Well, it's not good news. My heart was pounding. Uh, Out with it already! What happened? This is my daughter we're talking about. He looked at me, almost teary-eyed. Leslie's dead, Jack. Oh, no. All the color vanished from the room. What air I had in me left my lungs in a single labored breath as a steady stream of tears wet my face. Coulter put his hand on my shoulder. There's more. Please sit down. I fell to the bed, broken. The truth is, Jack, you broke rule number five. Now I have to hurt you. His lips stretched into a wicked grin and his body froze. He was still as a statue. Coulter? I don't understand. In a flash, his hands connected with my neck. With a viciously tight grip, he began squeezing the air out of my lungs. I tried to fight back, but his strength was overwhelming. I managed to get a few jabs into his head, but it it didn't seem to have any effect whatsoever. He forced me to the floor and continued to clench my throat until I, I, I finally lost consciousness. In that moment, I truly thought I was a goner. I woke in bed the next morning, alive and well. I quickly reached for my phone and noticed a text from Charlotte. Just put Leslie on the bus. She misses you terribly. So do I. Please be safe. We love you. I got out of bed and raced to the bathroom mirror. My neck was void of bruising. No signs of strangulation. I called Charlotte to be doubly certain. To my relief, Leslie was, indeed, fine. As alive as she was the day I left. It all just felt so real. Could it have really been a dream? (sighs) Frazzled, I met up with Coulter and we drove to our next meeting. I could still feel his hands wrapped around my neck. I refused to make eye contact with him the entire day. And he noticed... But what can I say without sounding certifiable? Hey, the hotel left me this weird set of rules to follow, and now I think I'm seeing things. Want to stop for coffee before you drop me off at the nearest hospital? (laughs) No, that would not bode well. Mild food poisoning from the sushi at the hotel bar was a far better excuse. (sighs) Only a few more days of torment, then I could leave. That's what I kept telling myself. 
Little did I know, my next night there would be the longest one yet. I awoke at 11.22 p.m., according to the blinking display of the alarm clock on the desk across the room. As my eyes adjusted, I noticed a faint orange light dancing on the wall, pouring in through a gap in the curtains. I pulled myself out of bed and walked over to the window to identify the source of the light. <gasps> what I saw was absolutely horrifying. The hotel was ablaze, an enormous fire engulfing the ground floor. The flames grew to great heights and touched the glass in front of me before I had the nerve to turn away and make a run for it. In leaving my room, I yelled to warn the other guests. Fire! There's a fire! We need to leave at once! No one joined me in the hall. There was no sound at all coming from within any of the other rooms on the floor. Had they already been evacuated? Was I the only one inside? I opened the first door in reach. It was unlocked. Inside was the reporter from TV, her face still dripping red, a blood stain on the carpet below. You should have followed the rules, Jack. I slammed the door shut and moved on. In the next room was Coulter. I watched him strangling a copy of me before his head turned and we locked eyes. He threw my lifeless body to the floor and started running towards me. You can't hide, Jack. I closed the door and ran to the next. This room contained yet another impossibility. The worst one yet. It was my wife and daughter standing at the door. Their eyes were vacant, drained of all human emotion. I watched, as astonished, as their skin burnt to a crisp before my eyes. Charlotte spoke first. We miss you terribly, Jack. Leslie chimed in after her. When will you be home, Daddy? I couldn't escape them. These horrors were around every corner. In a last-ditch effort to run away from my troubles, I bolted to the nearby elevator. The button was jammed, but I kept pressing it. I looked down the hall to see the reporter, Coulter, my wife, and my daughter all walking towards me. Come on, come on, work, you piece of crap, work! Finally, the button gave way and the doors opened. I hopped into the metal box and pushed the button for the first floor. The doors closed just as the ragtag team of zombies closed the gap between us. I slid to the floor on the verge of a heart attack. The ride down offered no solace, no lull in the supernatural calamity I faced. Without warning, the elevator dropped, plunging to the depths of the hotel, far deeper than I thought was even possible. I gripped the railing as tight as I could as the light wavered in and out of life. Between flickers, Garrett appeared before me. You've broken almost every rule, Jack. This is what happens. You'll destroy us all if you're not careful. He vanished and the light left with him. Knowing my death was fast approaching, I closed my eyes and just thought of Charlotte and Leslie. I could see them playing outside in the rain on the day I left. It was always heartbreaking to say goodbye and this would be no different. I held on to their memory and braced for impact. As the elevator neared the end of its descent, Garrett's booming voice entered my mind and broke the trance. Wake up, Jack! Jarred, my eyes opened and I fell back, landing on the floor. The unique abrasiveness of carpet brushed against my skin. I was no longer in the elevator. Upon taking a deep breath, gathering my wits, 
the familiar surroundings set in. I had inexplicably been transported back to room 371. As I looked around in disbelief, happy to be alive, I noticed the list in my hand. Rule number seven was now circled. The view is a lie. Don't trust it. It took a minute to register, but now I knew what it meant. The view through the window. There was never any fire, just another ploy to get me to leave the room, and I foolishly took the bait. My eyes darted to the alarm clock on the desk. It was 1.47 a.m., meaning it was now safe for me to leave, and I needed to get the hell out of there and fast. I stood up, marched to the door, and grabbed the knob. It was hot to the touch, burning hot. I pulled my hand back instinctively to avoid the harsh heat. Then I noticed the charred wood at the bottom of the door's frame, indicating fire. Real fire, but how? I thought the view had deceived me. I looked back to the list for answers and noticed a postscript scribbled in pen. You should have followed the rules, Jack. You did this. Now we all have to suffer. What? My eyes scanned the page for more clues, but to no avail. They kept landing on rule number seven. In addition to being circled, it was underlined with a striking red ink. Why did my attention need to be drawn there? Was it just gloating or something more? That's when it hit me. I walked over to the window and peered outside. The fire raged on outside my room, but the world below seemed unaffected. No flames, no firefighters, no one running out of the hotel. Just a plain old parking lot, traffic on the main road, and trees in the distance. As normal a view as one could hope to expect from this particular vantage point. But the view was a lie. I tried opening the window, but an unseen force ah, closed it shut on my fingers. Ah! I screamed and pulled them back. Ah, in a great deal of agony, I lifted the chair at the desk and threw it against the glass. It shattered, revealing the world outside for what it really was. I saw the fiery wall below and heard the guests screaming in peril. There was indeed a fire, and I truly was in danger. Still in pain, I picked up the list and looked at rule number six. The mini bar is for emergencies only. Well, this certainly was an emergency. Without any time to waste, I opened the mini bar up next to the desk. Inside were no drinks or food, only a small black box with a red button affixed to its surface. I pulled it out and placed it on the bed. There was now smoke seeping into the room through the outline of the doorway. Looking over the list again, there were no further instructions, nothing at all pertaining to the box. There was only one course of action left to take. Okay. I closed my eyes and pressed the button as hard as I could, putting my life in its hands. Memories played in my mind like a film reel running in reverse. The day's events, followed by the previous, and so on. I relived all of the fear and torment in a matter of seconds until, eventually, my eyes opened and I found myself in line with Coulter at the front desk, waiting to check in. This place isn't too shabby, Jack. Better than the last one, at least. <laughs> I, I can't explain how, but I was back in the hotel lobby on the first day of the business trip, the day we checked in. Say, Jack, 
What happened to your hands? I looked down and saw the bruises left by the window. Oh, it's... Uh, nothing. I slammed him in the car door. That, that's all. Both of them? He was cut off by the check-in clerk, greeting me. I was now at the front of the line. Do you have a reservation, sir? I stared at him for a long while, remembering everything that had happened. Then I backed away from the counter and turned to leave. Jack, where are you going? Uh, you know, I I'm sorry, Coulter. I'm going to go get an Airbnb instead. I'll see you tomorrow. He waved his arms at me, frustrated, then turned back to book his room. I heard the clerk handing him his key card before I reached the exit. Here you are, sir. Room 371 on the second floor. We hope you enjoy your stay. You know that old saying, good fences make good neighbors? And the saying, keep your friends close and your neighbors closer? No, wait, that's not right. Well, anyway, the idea is that oftentimes it's better to keep a healthy distance between yourself and your neighbors. And in this tale, shared with us by author Mr. Michael Squid, we meet a man who is finding it more and more difficult to keep that distance with one particular neighbor. Performing this tale is Jeff Clement. So don't worry, sometimes your eyes can play tricks on you. I'm sure it's not that the neighbor's house is getting closer. In my 15 years on Mulberry Lane, I rarely met my neighbors. A friendly wave when raking leaves or taking out the trash sufficed. I've always been a bit awkward, and I think of my home as the one place I can breathe and drop the social facade. I saw the moving van a few weeks ago outside the eggshell blue house next door and presumed a family was moving in. I didn't notice anyone but the movers during the brief glances out my curtains. I minded my own for a few days but then I began hearing the cries. Every night, once the sun went down, the muffled wailing of an infant would sound from the house next door. It wasn't too intrusive, and the sturdy walls of our craftsman homes offered plentiful noise reduction. A family fleeing the city to raise a child in the suburbs seemed only natural, of course. But the crying wouldn't subside, and it sounded, for lack of a better word, off. The high-pitched wail was just a bit too gravelly, the timing of the howls a tad too consistent. One Thursday, as the street became enshrouded in shadow and the crying began, I headed to the east end of my home and lifted open the heavy window facing the blue house of the neighbors to better hear. Perhaps it was the cool gust of autumn air on my skin that triggered a fear response, 
or the large shadows from the moonlight feeding my imagination. I listened to that wailing sound, a few decibels higher with my window's pane lifted, and it sounded almost animal. Something distinctly different than the cries of a human baby. I locked that second story window after closing it that night. My curiosity grew as certain peculiarities I could not explain became more frequent. A few days later, I returned from a grocery run. As I pulled into my driveway, I sat in my car for a few minutes, observing the pale blue house of the unseen neighbors. It looked very different, yet the same. It took a while to work out what seemed to be different. The house appeared to be closer, just by a foot or two. Something clearly impossible in every regard, of course, but impossible to ignore nonetheless. The 30-foot space between our homes looked just shy of that. The dull painted wood siding, flaking with neglect, was more prominent and in focus. I proceeded to unlock my front door, then double back to bring my produce inside. On the east side of my home, from out my kitchen window, their house did appear to be closer. Their dark window panes looked larger, closer than they previously had been. I considered myself a rational man, so I did my best to ignore the phenomenon. I did a good job of getting lost in my work until the golden sun began to set, a veil of shadow extinguishing its glow. I did my best to avoid looking out my windows. Getting worked up over nothing is counterproductive, even unhealthy. Still, once it was fully night, that strange cry sounded from next door. Louder. It was so very clearly louder. I exited my study and followed the hallway to the window overlooking the neighboring home. Framed within my window pane was that of the neighbors. It was undoubtedly closer. I approached without thinking, walking slowly down the runner carpet. I reached my window and looked through theirs. It was dark, the only sign of life that harsh crying that lit up the corner of my mind reserved for superstition and make-believe. My fingers pressed against the cold glass as I looked into the dark second-story floor of my neighbors. In the void of light shrouding their interior in darkness, I saw some fast movement. An appendage whipping in the dark from one side of the window to the other. Something impossible to identify. Maybe an arm. Maybe. Fear got the better of me. I briskly walked through my home, locking the windows and the doors. Out of sight, out of mind. I wiped my hands as if the gesture would rid myself of that tingling feeling of horror at my runaway imagination. I chuckled to myself, finally accepting how preposterous I was being. With a deep exhale, I poured a glass of red wine and plopped down onto the couch to watch something. A comedy. Despite all my efforts, I was unable to ignore the fact that I had to raise the volume a few bars in order to hush the crying from the neighboring house.
That week, work came in an avalanche. I freelance, so I was grateful not only for the money that would come, but for the fact I would actually be busy again. Idle hands, as the saying goes. Long days stretched into evenings as I toiled away debugging sloppy code. In the white light of the screen, I kept my earbuds in to drown out the terrible cries from next door. It's none of my business. I pushed the earbuds deeper and raised the volume. I opened a browser window and ordered a set of curtains. That seemed enough to calm my nerves, and I was eventually able to fall asleep that night. Try as I might to convince myself it was all some optical illusion or lapse in memory, I was unable to. That was punctuated after fetching the mail a week ago. I exited my front door and felt every neck hair raise when I felt the proximity of the house next door. When I turned my head, I just stood there stunned. It was roughly 15 feet from my home, undeniably closer than it previously had been. Just to allay my worries, to ease these unnatural fears lurking about in my mind, I decided to meet the neighbors, just a friendly introduction and maybe mentioning the peculiar phenomenon. They might think I was crazy, but at least I'd have a face of the mother or father to put my mind at rest. Maybe a glimpse of the baby creating those hideous sounds all hours of the night. After a deep breath, I walked along the concrete path to the sidewalk. It was only when I'd nearly reached their pathway that I realized something I hadn't before. There was no car in the driveway, nor had there ever been. I swallowed the lump that grew in my throat and tried to calm myself. It was a sunny day, lovely in all regard, aside from the large blue home that loomed overhead, casting a stark shadow. I knocked and waited. Nobody answered the door, but someone was clearly home. I heard a muffled scampering sound from behind the door. Despite the sounds from the inside, nobody answered. Hello? Um, I'm Mitchell, the neighbor. I just wanted to apologize for not greeting you earlier. I tried to maintain a chipper, neighborly voice, but it came out shaky. The sounds of movement from within the house left my insides cold. Something was quickly darting about and then stopping, as if listening. I flinched when I heard a heavy thud from somewhere deeper within. Curiosity led me closer to the tall, narrow windows on the sides of the door. I just wanted any sort of visual confirmation of the neighbors, just some sign that things were normal. I leaned in closer to the dark glass, peering in. Every light was off, and the sunlight that gave sight to the interior was strangely dim. I could barely make out anything at all. Just the general shape of a staircase like mine, a pink wallpaper that looked to have a glossy sheen. It looked wrong somehow, but I couldn't place it at the time. In retrospect, 
I think it was that the walls and stairs had an irregular texture. I quickly recoiled from the window, running back along the grass towards my home. I tried the police, but was lost for what I would even say. I settled on a wellness check, mentioning the sounds of a neglected infant from within and no vehicle or sign of the neighbors. I left out the most peculiar detail, the fact the house seemed to be getting closer to mine every day. I watched from my window when the police cruiser arrived, as the sun dipped beneath the mesh of tree branches. I saw the officer step outside his car and walk the path to their front door. He knocked, waited, and looked in the window. He circled the house and vanished from view, presumably to look in the other windows. I watched for a while, for any sign of him reappearing, but he did not. Eventually, I was so creeped out, I had to stop looking at that house. I occupied myself with the internet as the sun sank and the evening came. And then I heard the gritty crying that's not quite human. I walked downstairs to refill my water glass, and when I peeked out my kitchen window, I let out a gasp of shock. <gasps> the neighbor's window was right there just feet away from mine. I could even see into the shadowy home. The fuzzy darkness supplied a little insight to what was within, and that crippling fear lurching up from the crevices of my mind returned. I could see the walls, slick, wet, and lumpy. An organic, hollow form with fleshy walls that jittered and twitched ever so slightly. It was like looking into the beheaded, fat and veiny muscle of a freshly gutted elk. Bone-like support beams were visible through the translucent membrane I'd previously mistaken as wallpaper. I screamed, and it screamed back. The infant cries, coarse and distorted, bellowed from deep within the impossible structure. I panicked then, gathered a few belongings, phone charger, wallet, jacket, cash, and descended the staircase. I'd rent a hotel and call the police recommending backup. I played through the actions in my head, thinking of the cheap hotel off the highway just 15 minutes away. My skin crawled as I reached the first floor. I tried to ignore the undeniable sight out my kitchen window. It looked directly into that fluid, glazed, organic interior of the neighboring home. I focused on the front door, trying hard as I could not to register the fact that the horrific house next door now appeared to be directly attached to my own. I was jogging by the time I reached my front door, undoing the deadbolt with nervous digits. My mind was screaming at me to move faster, to get into the car, but then, I opened the door. A dark, red interior lay beyond my door. A continuation into a cubic, bodily cavity with viscera and veins. There was a stink of coppery meat, the smell of the butcher shop in the dead of summer, humid and rank. I slammed closed the door to the impossible horror that had somehow encompassed my home. 
my feet sprinted, carrying me to the basement door, which I locked behind me in a frenzy. Here I wait in the dark basement, as the screaming and gurgling sounds draw closer overhead. Wooden beams creak and groan. Glass occasionally shatters. I dialed emergency services again, but the signal is blocked by what has encased my home. A matchbook I found on the shelf rests in one hand, a tin of gasoline in the other. A last resort, quickly becoming the only option. I made my peace and accepted my fate. I only have one request for anyone out there who might see a house ablaze on Mulberry Lane. Make sure they don't put the fire out. I'm begging you, let it burn. It's a rare treat to experience live theater. And as they start to open up again, people will return to experience the wonders of the stage. And behind the scenes, quite a few people work hard to make those productions come to life. And in this tale, shared with us by author Claire Ridgewood, we meet a woman working her dream job, stage manager at an historic theater. But old theaters are often considered to be well, let's just say they're never truly empty. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Erica Sanderson, Nicole Goodnight, Kyle Akers, and Atticus Jackson. So aim the lights, ready the props, and tread those boards. Just make sure to watch out for the ghost light. I'd been working as a stage manager for three years when I was hired on to work at the theater. I was to be their in-house manager, overseeing the stage management of any and all productions that would grace the boards of our stage, and I was thrilled to have this opportunity. It is sad, but true, that the theater world is a difficult and, well, let's face it, kind of a cutthroat environment to work in. So landing a steady gig like a head stage manager for the theater... Well, that was as well as a dream come true. I won't bore you with the technicalities of my training or my stage management pedigree because that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to tell you why I quit stage management altogether and why I now work as a secretary at an insurance firm. Yeah, I bet you didn't see that one coming. Neither did I when I accepted that stage management job four years ago. I thought I'd finally made it to the big leagues. I never thought to question why they were so eager to hire someone with my average to mediocre level of resume. I should have asked more questions. The theater is one of the oldest in my city's theater district. Built in 1802, it has gone through almost everything. 
It was nearly decimated by a fire in 1870, where, so legend has it, several patrons and one actress perished in the flames. At the height of the Prohibition era, bootleggers would hide their goods in the crawl space under the stage. During the First World War, it was rumored that spies held meetings in the theater's basement. And in World War II, the dressing rooms and the entire area below stage were converted into a bomb shelter. Needless to say, that place has a history. The death of the actress and patrons in 1870 naturally sprouted their fair share of ghost stories. Many actors said they could hear screams and cries for help if they spent time in the old theater. But I can promise you that none of that is true. The old theater consists of the props department, workshop, and the stage management spaces. None of us working in these areas have ever heard anything. Actors just love making things dramatic for the sake of it. But there was one ghost story in the theater that was unique to us, and we were proud to pander to it. In 1899, just two years after the theater was fully rebuilt and refurbished, a murder happened on stage. Many people will tell you it happened during a production of Shakespeare's Macbeth, or Hamlet, but it was nothing quite so spectacular nor predictable. No, the death happened during a production of Ibsen's Hedda Gabler. For those of you who know the play, yeah, the gun was loaded. Both times. Two actors died that night, committing scripted suicide. Now, the investigation never did determine if these were indeed murders or suicides, but it was sensational back then. Some rumors even flew around that the two dead actors had been lovers. The front hall of the theater is plastered with old newspaper articles relating the gruesome events. Audiences are suckers for it, and they eat that stuff up. Theater even has ghost tours come in every Friday and Saturday night after midnight, if there are no running shows, to see the place where it all went down. There was a Shakespeare-related death in 1911, but it was ruled accidental. A prop fell from the rafters and crushed a stagehand who was standing in the wings during a production of King Lear. Needless to say, the death happened offstage and it went mostly unnoticed. But there were some articles about it, and they also graced the front of the house of the But it gets better. In 1930, during a performance of Rope, the two leads genuinely kill their fellow actor before locking him in a chest. One of the actors claimed it was all an accident, while the other claimed that it made him do it. Once again, a total sensation. Articles on the walls, ghost tours, and even special mentions in those terrible, low-budget, most haunted documentaries. I am telling you about all these sensationalized deaths to explain to you one thing. People at the theater were really superstitious. No, I mean it. Really superstitious. More than your average actor or stagehand. It was bad. Even the owner said he got goosebumps if he was in the theater by himself. As a result, people were extremely faithful to the usual theatrical traditions. No whistling in the theater. No saying Macbeth ever except when performing the play. The list goes on. But most importantly of all was the ghost light. A ghost light is very simple. It's just a standing lamp with an incandescent bulb that stands lit center stage when no other lights are on. The gullible and superstitious like to believe that the ghost light either appeases or scares off theater ghosts. Either way, it prevents ghosts from sabotaging productions. The truth is much less fun. The ghost light is a safety precaution. 
When all other lights are out, theaters are darker than pitch. So the ghost light illuminates the surroundings from the stage, mostly to avoid people falling six feet into the orchestra pit, but also to avoid them bumping into props during ongoing productions. The light only stays on until we find the light controls and turn on everything else. Then it gets shunted to its spot backstage, where it waits for its next appearance when the show is over, the audience gone, the stage swept clean. As in-house stage manager, I usually defer the task of setting up the ghost light to an assistant. On occasion, however, I've had the privilege of setting up the ghost light myself. And I get it. I get why people are creeped out by empty theaters with little to no light. In the dark, the auditorium becomes a cavernous space. You can't tell up from down, sounds bounce off the walls strangely, and you can't tell distances of any kind. So the ghost light is necessary for our protection, for everyone's protection. I think it was my second production at the when it happened. We were in the middle of a rehearsal for A Streetcar Named Desire when suddenly the breaker blew. I'm still not sure how it happened. Needless to say, the sudden darkness and lack of a ghost light caused quite its share of panic amongst the actors. People were freaking out. And honestly, I was too. It was my first time in such total, all-absorbing darkness. It made me swallow hard. I felt small and incredibly vulnerable. In spite of the other people screaming, I felt alone. It was as if the darkness had swallowed me whole and I was sitting in the belly of a gargantuan beast just waiting to be digested. I scrambled blindly around my stage manager's booth for the flashlight we kept for such emergencies. My hands groped hopelessly until they latched onto the heavy grooved metal handle and I could feel a release of tension as I flicked on the light. It was a thin and weak beam, but it was reassuring in the dark. Armed with this, I went to find that busted breaker. I shone my flashlight against the concrete walls of the basement hall I was gingerly walking through. Speckles of white dust crossing the cold white beam of my light. Every creak made me jump with nerves. I was tense as a bowstring, ready to snap at any moment. I swear, if someone had thought to jump out at me as a prank, I would have skinned them alive then and there. But I soldiered on. I was the big stage manager. I couldn't let a bit of darkness get to me. I couldn't tell you if the breaker that busted was also connected to the heat, but by the time I reached the console in the basement, I was freezing. My fingers were stiff with cold as I opened up the panel to the breakers. Even in the white LED shine of my flashlight, I couldn't make out what half the breakers were for. The writing on them was illegible, faded, and in some parts, even scratched away. So I screwed my courage to the sticking place and just picked the biggest breaker there. It was the only one that was orange, so it had to be the one. And if the theater exploded on my account, so be it. Another sensational story for the ghost tours. Luckily, the orange breaker did the trick and all the lights came back on with an odd, dull thud of a sound. The lights of the basement hallway I was in took a moment longer to warm up and flicker to life. Old neons, you know. And for a split second, I felt sure I was being watched. Turning around, I saw someone standing at the end of the hall. For a second, I stood stock still, scared to my core. A chill ran down my spine, 
and I could tell the hairs at the back of my neck were rising stiffly. There had been some creaks, but I hadn't heard any footsteps. And this was a stone floor, so unless they were wearing socks, I would definitely have heard someone creep up behind me. So how had this person gotten there? Why did they follow me? And they seemed rather tall. Maybe it was Mike? He was a six foot two kind of a guy, but from where the figure stood, they looked even taller than that. I couldn't really make out any features under the unsteady flicker of the overhead light. I was gonna call out to the person when the neon finally decided it did want to stay on and stop blinking. There was no one. A fabric-covered tailor's dummy stood at the end of the hall. A trick of the shadows giving the illusion of someone tall. I breathed a sigh of relief. Just my imagination. But I still couldn't shake the feeling of being watched. Nervous and paranoid, I made my way back up the stairs and into the backstage area. As I reached it, I could still make out screaming from the stage. If anything, the screaming had intensified since I'd left. I went on stage to see. Jake, one of our actors, had fallen down the orchestra pit. People were losing their heads in a panic over it. Emergency services had already been called. Jake was mostly okay, save for a broken arm and dislocated knee. He also had some pretty nasty and bloody gashes on his calf, right below the injured knee. I was just happy he hadn't died on me. This was going to be an insurance nightmare for sure, but at least he was alive. Most of us were still in total shock. It had been bad, seeing Jake sprawled in the orchestra pit like a broken doll. The fact that nothing worse had happened to him was a relief. The orchestra pit had been empty, with no chairs or obstacles for Jake to hit on his way down. It made me wonder how he got those horrible lacerations on his leg. Regardless, our Blanche actress was inconsolable. She almost seemed to believe it was her fault for all this happening. It's not on you. It was dark. He probably got confused. But the actress shook her head. <laughs> it told me it had done it. It almost gloated. Then she started crying again, melting into incoherent nonsense. I sent everyone home after that. The director thought there was no point in continuing rehearsal with half the cast in hysterics. I agreed. I made them promise me that they would work twice as hard the next rehearsal. That night, Elsie, my assistant stage manager, left early for an appointment, so it was up to me to sweep the stage. As I was doing so, blasting music over the sound system, I thought I felt a draft of air. I turned around in annoyance. If someone had left the loading bay doors open again, I was going to throw a fit. But when I turned to look, the bay doors were firmly closed and locked in place. I went to have a closer look. There was no draft coming from anywhere near the doors. The backstage emergency doors were also firmly closed against any breeze. I tried to shrug off the queasy feeling that was threatening to wash over me and went back to sweeping. Queen was blasting over the speaker system when the music started to skip. It was like a broken record. Intermittent small gasps between words and bars. Every once in a while, white noise crept in. I figured that the local radio station was maybe messing with the theater sound system, though how that was possible was beyond me. And then the music stopped entirely. Then there was static, just static. I dropped my mop where it was and ran up to the stage manager's booth. I wasn't sure what was going on, but I hoped this didn't mean my phone was damaged. 
I got to the small room that served as my domain and flicked on the lights, flooding the booth with brightness. Everything seemed in order. I checked the sound systems. I checked my phone. The battery was at 68%, so I wasn't sure what had happened. Then I noticed something that froze the blood in my veins. I hadn't realized it upon first entering the room, but my phone had been unplugged from the sound system. I knew for certain that I hadn't done that, and to my knowledge, I was supposed to be alone in the theater at this time. <laughs> I chuckled nervously to myself to ease the sudden fear that had gripped me. Our very own Phantom of the Opera. Taking my phone with me, I turned off the lights in the booth and locked it behind me. I was done for the evening. This whole day had been too weird. Elsie or I would mop the rest of the stage when we got in the next morning. I executed a quick final sweep of the theater, ensuring no one had left anything behind or that there were any phantoms around. My last task, usually Elsie's, was to place the ghost light center stage and switch it on. As soon as the incandescent light bulb flared up, I thought I saw the shadow of a person retreating into the wings. I had to hold on to the stem of the lamp to crown myself. The hairs at the back of my neck prickled and my hands felt clammy. Was I really not alone? I called into the wings, the sound swallowed by the heavy velvet curtains around me. Hello? Can, uh, can I help you? I thought I heard a shush in response. Well, not a shush, really. More of a very sibilant and drawn-out whisper. As though the wind had learned to speak the sound of S. That was the final straw for me. I bolted out of the theater, killed the house lights, and locked the doors. I was not staying in there with some creepy Phantom of the Opera wannabe. I returned early the next day. I had calmed down significantly, chalked up the sounds and shadows to my imagination following the previous evening's incident. I was still slightly on edge, but that was understandable. Jake's fall had been a shock. Unlocking the doors, I found myself in an entirely dark theater. The ghost light had gone out. I quickly clicked on the house lights, which mercifully turned on right away. I ran to the stage to examine the ghost light, only to find that the bulb had burned itself out overnight. That was my fault. I should have checked it before leaving it on. Breathing a sigh of relief, I went to fetch a spare bulb from the booth. Nothing out of the ordinary there either. Everything was in its place. I had clearly let my imagination get the better of me the previous evening. I went back to the lamppost and screwed in the new bulb before taking the ghost light backstage. It had done its duty. I would bring it back out at the end of rehearsal. Then I remembered I had to finish sweeping the stage. I turned to the proscenium. The mop was exactly where I had left it. I suddenly let go of a breath I hadn't realized I was holding in the whole time. There was no phantom, there were no ghosts. I just had an overactive imagination. As I crossed the stage with the large sweeper, I noticed what looked like dragging footprints on the ground. They couldn't have been mine from the previous evening, could they? No, I thought. Someone was clearly playing a prank on me and was taking it a step too far. Once I found out who the culprit was, they would pay dearly. By the time I had finished sweeping and adjusting the marks on stage, the director and the assistant director had arrived. The actors were, as was their fashion, late. What disappointed me was that my assistant manager, Elsie, was late too. 
I was exchanging pleasantries and relating my previous night's scare to the director when my phone rang. I looked at the screen to find it was Elsie calling. Hi, Elsie, you're late. What's up? There was no sound on the other end, just an odd crackling and what sounded like very faint breathing. Hello? Still no response. Elsie, this isn't funny. I promise you're not in trouble. Even though she technically was. This finally got a reply. It was Elsie's voice, but it sounded distant, as though through water, and she sounded petrified. I'm sorry. The line hung up. I stared blankly at my phone. What the fuck had that been? I immediately dialed Elsie back. Hello. Hi, Elsie, what You've the fuck? You've reached Elsie Maynard. I'm sorry I can't answer the phone right now, so please leave a message. You know how. There was an obnoxious beep, followed by her bubbly voice recording, but I said nothing. I merely hung up. Instead, I opted to text her. Elsie, when you get this, please call me ASAP. That done, I returned to the director and his assistant. The actors were now also trickling in for the rehearsal. I clapped my hands loudly. Chop, chop, people. We don't have all day. We need to make up for yesterday's lost time. There was a murmur of assent among the actors. They were about as lively as a pack of frozen scallops. I'd seen more enthusiasm from the cactus I keep in my booth. Guys, really? Come on. Where we left off yesterday, scene four. But what about Jake? Elsie will read his part. But where is Elsie? I looked down at my phone. There'd been no reply to my text. In fact, it had failed to send at all. I brushed it off coolly. Oh, Elsie is sick, so she's staying home for the day. I'll read for Jake. Rehearsal went, well, it was mediocre, really. If the actors had been doing the whole thing in a vat of molasses, it couldn't have been any slower. But nothing weird or spooky happened. The actors left with a sense of relief and what I thought to be a renewed confidence. When I was cleaning up the theater at the end of the evening, nothing strange happened either. I was frankly comforted by the fact that everything else had only been in my head. I'd never thought I'd go for all the theater superstitions, but I had apparently fallen for them hook, line, and sinker. I was glad it was nothing more than that, however. I set up the ghost light for the evening, made sure the house was clear and everything was locked. Then I turned off the house lights and locked the theater, ready to go home. On the bus, I took a glimpse at my phone. I had 14 missed messages. This did not come as much of a surprise as I kept my phone off during rehearsals, though 14 was perhaps a bit much. It was probably some survey people who had called. I decided to check anyway, just to make sure I didn't miss something. All the messages had been left by Elsie. Every last one. Every message had Elsie sounding distant and through some sort of static. I'm sorry, she repeated, message after message. There was nothing else said, just I'm sorry, followed by a long silence, disrupted only by crackling white noise. The very last message, however, was different. Elsie was clearly crying. Even through all the static, I could tell. <laughs> it's coming again. Get away, it's coming. The silence that followed that message was a full two minutes before the line hung up. I swallowed a hard lump in my throat, just unnerved. My insides felt like they had twisted into a Gordian knot while listening to the creepy messages. 
Needless to say, I did not care for Elsie's bizarre prank, and as soon as I could find a new assistant stage manager, she was fired for fucking with me like that. It was unprofessional and childish, and it did not belong with a professional theater production. Elsie did not show up for rehearsal the next day either. The actors were getting twitchy about it. I tried to reassure them as best I could, but the Blanche actress had another meltdown, weeping and wailing for the back row to hear. <laughs> it's its fault. It's got its hands on Jake and now it's got Elsie. This production is doomed. Wow, thanks for the drama, princess, I thought, unimpressed by her melodramatic affliction. But this seemed to rouse the other actors as well. It has been more active than before. I tuned out at this point. More actors' nonsense. I know. Things have been stolen from me in the dressing room. It was definitely it. You always mislay your things, though. No, I swear they were stolen. Yeah. Didn't you see what it wrote on Jake's mirror? This piqued my attention. Somebody wrote on the mirror? Well, not written, per se. It was more of a scrawl. Like, someone trying to write, but who doesn't know letters. Was this done with makeup? The actor shook their head. Can you show me? The actor looked around at their fellow cast members as though begging for anyone else to step up to the plate, but it fell to them to show me in the end. As we made our way down to the dressing rooms, we entered the concrete hall lit by neon again. The constant buzz of the fluorescent tubes was both reassuring and unsettling. We turned a corner and entered Jake's dressing room. My jaw dropped in shock. It wasn't as though someone had written on the mirror. It was as though something had gouged it out. The scratches along the glass surface ran deep, forming unintelligible scribbles. It reminded me of crisscrossing claw marks, like cat scratches, or like the gashes on Jake's leg. Why did no one mention this before? It wasn't as bad yesterday. It really was only a small scrawl. The lump in my throat felt like a fist-sized rock. I tried to swallow it, but to no avail. We'll just have to replace this mirror. Hopefully we can get that done before dress rehearsals. The actor didn't bother listening to me and bolted from the room. I called after them, only to be plunged in sudden darkness. I heard screams coming from upstairs. It had to be the breaker again. Using my cell phone as a flashlight, I hugged the concrete wall on my way to the fuse box. I spotted the mannequin that had given me a fright last time right away. It stood only a few feet from the box. I chuckled to myself as I walked past it. <laughs> You're not going to get me this time. As before, the closer I got to the box, the colder it seemed to get. When I was at the console, a faint glimmer could be seen on the walls, like frost clinging to the stone, and I could see my breath rising in front of me. What the fuck? I opened the frozen fuse box and found the orange breaker. It was harder to lift than the last time, but with a bit of a shove, it moved back into its correct position and the lights groaned back on. I closed the box as the neon flickered to life above me. I shut off my phone. Mission accomplished, I thought. I looked back at the dummy, almost to gloat that it hadn't scared me this time. It was standing in its usual place at the far end of the hall. 
So far, there was no way I could have passed by it earlier. Bile rising in my throat, I placed my hand on the wall for support. Then I screamed. My hand met another hand. I was sure of it. I looked at the wall and everywhere around me. In the sickly green light of the fluorescence, there was no one to be found. Yet I was absolutely certain I had felt a hand beneath mine. A long-fingered hand with an unnatural amount of joints. Bony and frozen. I made my way back upstairs as quickly as my legs would carry me. When I rushed onto the stage, breathless and terrified, the actors looked at me quizzically. Why did you scream? Spider? Haha, I thought spitefully. Sure, make fun of my arachnophobia. No, I... But I realized explaining things would be futile. I reached for my water bottle instead and emptied it in one go. I had to calm down. There was just no way, no way a disembodied hand could have met mine in the basement. I spent the rest of the rehearsal on tenterhooks. I was distracted. I missed cues. I surprised everyone by reading the wrong page at some point. I was anxious to leave. I had never wanted out of a theater so quickly in my life. I was almost faster than the actors when it came to gathering my stuff. I went to the booth to get my bag. I found the contents of it strewn across the place. My cue script was ripped up as though mauled by a dog. My phone lay on the floor with a shattered screen. My lucky keychain lay in pieces beneath the chair. I did not pause to think. I took everything and stuffed it unceremoniously into my bag before running back to the auditorium. The actors were starting to leave. I wanted to scream at them, wait, don't leave me alone. But not a sound left my throat. I felt as though my lungs were suddenly filled with sand. My mouth was too dry to even speak. I would be left alone to finish up, to set up the ghost light, and to deal with my phantom. I was not looking forward to the prospect. Leaving my bag in one of the auditorium seats, I climbed onto the stage. I brought out the ghost light from the wings and flicked it on. As I turned away, however, I heard the telltale click of the light going off, and I was suddenly swallowed by impenetrable darkness. Immediate panic rose in me as I ran to my backstage station to pick up a flashlight. I felt as though someone was breathing down my neck the whole time. My breathing came in quick, uncomfortable wheezes, far too quickly to think straight. My head was starting to spin. There, my hand had found purchase on the handle of the LED flashlight. I immediately switched it on. I turned the light on whatever was behind me. At first, the white beam meant nothing but curtains and shadows. The white light cast by the LED bulb almost caused more shadows than it dissipated, not helping to alleviate my fears at all. Then that sound began again. It started as a sibilant S sound. That same sound I had imagined was the wind. But the S slowly grew in intensity, only to suddenly fall silent. In a small voice I recognized too well, the S turned into sorry. Elsie? I pointed my flashlight into the auditorium. That was a mistake. In the back row stood a tall, dark figure, its edges almost blurred. One thing was for certain, though. It was moving towards me. It crawled or 
undulated. I can barely describe how it moved. I'm not sure I want to describe how it moved. It splayed its many jointed hands onto the seat before it and pulled itself forward slowly, inching forward. The dark figure only seemed to absorb more light the more I shone my flashlight on it. It was as though it turned darker the longer I looked at it. The edges remained blurry. I could make out spindly long limbs that joined the freakish hands to the body, but I couldn't make out no detail, especially no face. That's when it spoke again. I'm so sorry. It sounded like a distorted version of Elsie's voice, like listening to Elsie through an insulated wall. There was a crackling like static. Before my eyes, the blurry black figure sprouted a face. Elsie's face. It had somehow stolen her. Once again, it said it was sorry in Elsie's voice, but Elsie's lips never moved. It was as though the creature was playing a recording of her. My knees were starting to buckle from underneath me and the room started spinning. I was about to faint. My breathing was ragged and desperate, drowning in the stifling air. In a moment of clarity, my eyes darted toward my savior. Four red letters glowing faintly above a door. Exit. The emergency door was only across the stage from me. If I ran, I could probably make it before the creature wearing Elsie's face reached me. I dropped the flashlight. Its beam still pinioned on the monster in the auditorium, and it bolted for the door. Opening that exit meant I would start the fire alarm and sprinkler system. The set would be ruined. I didn't care. I had to get out. I reached the door and pushed against it. It did not give. The creature behind me edged closer. The suspiring S always on its breath. I closed my eyes and prayed to whatever god or entity would hear my entreaty. A sudden shrill ringing caused me to jump. The door gave way at the same time, and I fell onto the pavement outside the back of the theater. As the door slammed shut behind me, I could make out the creature wailing and writhing under the water from the sprinklers. Elsie's face had mercifully been wiped from its obscure form. I sat on the pavement in shock, listening to the fire alarm and distant cries of the creature inside the theater. The infamous it so many actors had referred to. Fire sirens rang around me as emergency vehicles and the fire brigade arrived on site. An EMT tried to jostle me out of my stupor. Instead, I fainted. When I came to, I was in a hospital with sunlight streaming in through the ugly yellow ward curtains and the gentle snoring of other overnight patients around me. My body felt like lead. I was only half certain of the events of the previous night, but I had some sort of fever dream. When the director came to visit me, he was livid. My starting the fire alarm had destroyed the set and cost the theater thousands of dollars of damages. The theater owner apparently couldn't even bring himself to speak to me over the events. The director kept asking me why, since there had been no evidence of a fire. I had no answer for him. I only said one thing to the director, and that was, Elsie. 
I'm not sure whether you could say I resigned or whether I was fired. I don't know who wanted me out of the theater faster, the owner or myself. Needless to say, I will never work there again, or any theater for that matter. Because if the creature I met that night can take on other faces, I don't know where I'll meet it again. I now sleep with the bedside lamp on every night. I don't feel safe anymore without a ghost light. In our final tale, we recall those days when music was experienced on vinyl records with their glorious album covers artfully displaying the artists. But even though vinyl is making a resurgence, it seems like those musical tales are told only in the form of reminiscence. And in this tale, shared with us by author Neil Noon, we learn of one musician who went missing under strange circumstances and how there are many mysterious things about him which are, shall we say, off the record. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson, James Cleveland, Andy Cresswell, David Alt, and Penny Scott Andrews. So look through those old albums, see if you can find it, but don't delve too deeply for the lost sound of Peter Wood. Do you ever look at an artist on an album cover and almost think you know them? I bet it's happened once or twice at least. I don't think I'm alone in this. There were times growing up when my records were basically filed by the mood on the face of the artist on the cover. I was, at the time from, say, 14 to 17, quite singular. So if I'd had a bad day at school, I'd turn to Brenda Fisk. On the cover of Fleeting Beams, she looks so warm. In this yellow tint of summer sunshine, 1965, I'd place the sleeve opposite my bed and whisper whatever had troubled me that day. Usually the trouble had a name. One of my three main bullies at that school, which I mostly hated because it felt like it belonged to them. 
I wouldn't actually put the record on because, well, I don't know if you know it, but it's not dated so well. Brenda's actual voice was not so much warm as, well, I saw a review once that said she had barked her simple lyrics. And that's a bit harsh, but I suppose it's why only real folk fans have ever heard of her. Instead, I'd put on Doris Bellwether. The early stuff, obviously, before she became so professional. On the first three albums, for reasons best known to herself, she only bothers to sing the choruses, which is perfect when you're busy listing all the indignities you'd suffered for not looking your best in the break between maths and English. Anyway, when I started my own label, it's no surprise that the cover portrait was always a bit of an obsession. I don't work with living artists. To cut down on recording costs, I used to joke to the perfect monochrome cover of George Trammell's Under a Cloud, and his face, frozen mid-laugh, never failed to deliver the flat teaspoon of gratification I craved. It was sort of true. I had just enough capital to pay for rights and pressing, so it made sense to focus on reissues. But with my, quite modest, really, inheritance... The only out-of-print records I could really afford to buy the rights to were the ones that had failed so utterly the first time round they were curios at best. Under a Cloud was my first. It was six months before I sold a copy, but I still felt that George, long dead at his own hand, would be pleased to think some collector in Leeds had snapped up his admittedly challenging album, whether they bothered listening to it or not. A few years on, collectors are my market. Completists, really. I've learned that the records that sell well, well, okay, okay that sell at all, are the ones with a good story attached. With George Trammell, it's his suicide, sadly. Especially since he did it by carbon monoxide and his album art has all that fog on it. With Hilda Stiggs, it's the brutal murder of her manager. Hilda's my second bestseller. The actual record is unlistenable. The story behind my next release my first album, which was never released even once, is even better. When Hilda's manager was murdered, by Hilda with a decorative marble ashtray, it made the papers because she's never been rediscovered as an artist, because, as some muso wrote on a blog, Stiggs's love songs are so uniformly angry she should probably give it up and go and live in a nunnery. I wonder how prison compared. Anyway... Even her short career can't match, at last, a name you might recognise, Peter Wood, who disappeared famously. I hope you won't mind me repeating the basics. You probably read about Peter in one of those newspaper articles that squeezed in his terrible childhood, disastrous career and sudden terrifying exit into a single column. But what happened to Peter, I now think, is much more than human interest. A talent who missed his chance or a man who capsized under his own demons. Whatever happened to Peter is still happening, for better or worse. But let's go back to the beginning, behind the music, before he was, well, taken. Peter Wood was the only child of a family so massively alcoholic he'd later joke that even the dog preferred gin in his bowl. It wasn't the kind of joke, I suppose, that you were supposed to laugh at. Neither did he get along with school, being already a dreamer by necessity. 
Luckily, his parents were too busy emptying bottles to chastise him for his failing grades or increasing truancy. There was a large and largely untended park not far from his home. Tall yellow grass and stagnant green-brown ponds. Peter went there instead of lessons, to climb trees, make dens, discover masturbation. But as autumn grew colder, there was a tiny cafe just inside the park gates, mostly empty except for its bohemian owner and occasional friends. Peter would sidle shyly in, buy a cup of tea and make it last two hours. Meanwhile, the friends, apparently all musicians, took turns to play traditional numbers to each other, the owner, and off in the furthest corner, Peter. He liked how they sang about how life used to be, closer to nature. But the musicians had a sort of uniform too. So, skimming change from his sleeping parents, bit by bit, he bought a cap, a scarf, the right boots, the right jacket. By the time his own wispy teenage beard had grown, the only prop left was the cheapest guitar he'd ever seen. It was the last birthday present his parents ever gave him, sounded like catgut and fought his every tuning. But it was also his chance to move from the audience to the stage. He was banned from playing it in the house. Mum and Dad preferred to sink in silence. Instead... He'd practice in their thin strip of overgrown garden, even in the rain. What did he care? By the time he had some songs of his own, he was living in a squat with a clutch of other strummers, bobbing around the bottom of the bill, someone to fill the slot when most were still arriving, often too busy eating to applaud. He was saved from being just another reciting songbook by having his heart first broken. He wouldn't talk about it after, so her name and face are gone. There are clues in the lyrics that his new and raw need was met by a liking, not a loving. In his song, A Physical Thing, he seems to scorn the trade of his virginity for, and he more spits than sings this, a flash of fire soon swallowed. Other lines are more explicit, quite a lot more. Peter shared his secrets in his songs, and not just his own. But as his real feelings finally found an outlet, as he rose up the booking order to fill the room with anger and accusations, so the scene who'd nurtured him increasingly found him a problem, on and off stage. His next song was called Your Man on the Floor. It's a barely two-minute snarl basically bragging about a one-sided fistfight, with, it seems, his ex's new partner. From a first blow, the other wasn't expecting to Your Man Taking a Kicking your man curled up and crying. Peter was banned from both cafe and squat. He took only his guitar from where he'd been staying, a suitably symbolic gesture to prove his purity. Then back to his parents, where he stopped just long enough to pocket the meagre savings he'd seen his mum squirrel away in a kitchen cupboard. With it, he'd buy the simple, scratchy home recording equipment of the day. A fellow folk he saw him hitchhiking out of town, but didn't stop. An estate agent fondly remembered charging an intense young man a sizable sum for the renting of a tumble-down cottage deep in the green. Duration, one month. And Peter closed the door on a world that would not see him again. I came to the cottage when I was still deciding whether to release the album. The music merited it, there was no question. 
but the rights had reverted to his now elderly parents, who, miraculously still drinking and somehow thriving, were asking a fortune for them. A way to recoup what he stole from them, I suppose. The place was nothing like the black-and-white photos that accompanied the news stories back then. Missing singer leaves strange recording and all that. Back then, the rooms were cluttered with furniture falling apart. The windows were almost opaque with grime, and the garden was a waste of tall grass right up to the walls. But with this region becoming more touristy in the 40 years since Peter's artistic retreat, the current owner had it nicely painted, central heated, and Wi-Fi enabled. What it lost in mystery, it gained in comfort. Anyway, the tall trees at the end of the garden cast as much shadow as ever. I answered my few customer emails, drowsed on the early evening couch. I attempted to capture, but mostly killed, the many moths in the bedroom and set about planning the sleeve. Peter, missing at twenty for forty years, was finally getting his release. My label had only one employee, apart from me, and even him only during production phases. His name was Goodwin. He lived 50 miles away in a state of sarcasm so ingrained I had to read every email three times to pin down what he was really feeling. When, late that first night there, I sent him fair warning that there was another doomed project on the way, his reply read, in full, Crusty old folk music. Just what the world needs more of. Honestly, I don't even care if the money for this one never comes through. I transferred his fee immediately. The morning was spent clearing drifts of dead beetles from kitchen cupboards, even a few on their backs in the oven. A sudden sore throat and a mild fever. But I had a deadline, so with my designer's hat on, lined up the three photos of Peter when he was younger than me, long ago. This for the cover. One serious, two sad. It was a shame I didn't have any in which he looked cruel, since that was definitely the tone of the record. Anyway, before I could make a decision, Goodwin was calling. Because, for the first time in our working arrangement, he was actually interested in what he was hearing. This didn't translate into compliments so much as an interrogation. Goodwin was angry at rest. He'd been in a band himself, who'd had just enough success for him to feel when it was gone again. Twenty years on, he ate, drank, and often slept in his basement studio all he had left of those days. His one lasting enjoyment, luckily for me, the ticklish challenge of restoring old audio. I think mostly to relish any imperfection of technique the process uncovered. Today, he wanted to know what this pretentious prick, he never bothered to learn the names of the artists, was on when he made it. I said, as far as anyone knows, country air and raw emotion. Because the story goes that once out at the cottage, Peter never even made it to the village shop for supplies. Whatever. Goodwin was more interested in the instrumentation. No, I didn't know what made that rumbling sound. Or the clangs, no. There's no record of Peter ever learning anything other than the guitar. But it's true. There are some seriously weird textures to these recordings. Not so much the first half, which contains just Peter, his guitar, and an air hiss half filled with his bitterness, snarls and wails of unhappiness. It's on the flip side, where we move from choruses to fragments, from words about his life to mumbled lines that seem barely connected. 
Harmonic drones, like mournful cattle trotting into the abattoir. What could be bells, but from a great distance, as if channeled through a valley? And these sudden squalls in which all these sounds, including Peter's voice, twine and strain and echo. But how he achieved that with the, again, really basic portable recorder Peter had brought here? Pass. Sometimes it sounds like he was surrounded by an orchestra, swallowed by the arrangement. Back in the cottage, my newest symptom was a maddening itching in obscure parts of my body. Idly scratching, I found myself gazing into the eyes of the leftmost, lesser depressed version of Peter. This while his song, Close Enough to Touch Inside, was playing, fairly loudly from my laptop. The benefits of no neighbours. Having told him I was sure he'd probably soon be famous, at least among a handful of obsessive collectors of unplayed vinyl, I opened the door to let a breeze in, summer's heat already rising. And as he sang, In your tender arms that so slowly unravel me, I bent to examine the bag of fresh mushrooms, ragged salad leaves and a small joint of meat wrapped in newspaper that had been left on the doorstep by no neighbours, no bystanders, no farmers nearby even, as far as I'd been told. With no one to thank, and the paranoia of a city dweller abroad, I placed the meat, quite pink, quite bloody, gently into the white light of the fridge and closed the door, feeling more discomfort than gratitude. Years of nothing, not even suffering, Peter sang, as if wading into a forest of static. Every time I slept now, I woke with small scratches, where I must have scratched away in the dark. At first I blamed some allergy, but finding a good handful of pale baby beetles crawling blindly across the creases in the still-warm bedsheets made it hard to touch anything. I began to wonder how thorough the place's makeover had been. And yeah, after half a breakfast, I examined the meat again, couldn't decide what it was, again, and guiltily transferred it double-bagged to the bin. Later, of course, I'd learned that I'd already taken too much without knowing the source. Back in my flat, above a backstreet mini-mart, the remaining list of pre-released chores was being slowly struck through in red. This while dealing with the beetles that must have somehow hitched a ride in my luggage. I was itching a lot still, raised red skin. And listening to Jane Bellows, I remember, 
A woman so timid she put the back of her head on the front of her album. Despite its predictable failure, I had a soft spot for her mumbled delivery, especially when twinned with the basic drum kit she played pretty approximately. Receiving no reviews as my third release, she had promptly failed again. Goodwin had, to be fair, told me so. He'd often text me when he got up, in the late afternoon, with updates. Sometimes our exchanges got pretty flirty. I don't think either of us was genuinely attracted to the other, but it served a purpose. Anyway, he'd also, more recently, additionally, taken to calling me at dusk to complain in detail about the sudden glut of nightmares he blamed Peter's record for. The last had been particularly vivid. He was miles from anywhere, he said, and just standing like a monument, a hollow trunk or something. He said he could feel the cold in his heart and lungs while his nose and mouth are furring with moss. He's looking into the dead eyes of a woman standing just as still in front of him, when, slowly, arms encircle him. But not hers. From behind him, two strong arms that tighten and tighten, and now he watches her hand float up towards his head. It takes a long time, hours maybe, but he knows it's getting closer. Finally, in the dark, he feels her fingertips meet his face. He feels the pressure growing. He feels it give like a rotten log. Night was falling again above the alley when my phone beeped full of a message, so I assumed it would be the next instalment. But we'd also taken to sending each other pictures of our... Well, you know, so I picked it up. It was an unknown number, though and the words even stranger. I know where Peter Wood is, it said in full. Hard to know where to begin with a reply. I went with the pretty obvious. Where? Which was, yeah, when my doorbell rang. Because of the kind of story my story is, you probably already guessed it was the man himself on my doorstep. Maybe you even predicted he'd look approximately the same as he did on his one cover, ageless and unmoving. For my part, the sum total of sense I could muster, he was even in the same folk outfit he wore from back then. The very best sentence I could construct was, Oh my fucking God. He looked past me up the stairs to my door. My music, Peter answered with difficulty, like he hadn't used his voice in a long time. Once upstairs, he makes straight to the mock-up of his record sleeve. It's like he's looking into a mirror. Why? He says. But I'm busy pouring two glasses of wine, which I'm happy to drink if he doesn't, such is the shock. It's a great album which has no visible effect I release records which miss their audience the first time round he puts the sleeve down still unreadable I gulp down half a glass of the cheap red stuff you look exactly the same at this he reacts Eyes to mine. Seems almost surprised, though I don't know how. You can't release it. He says, 
sitting with difficulty. Oh, okay, but, but the thing is... He waves away the wine I offer. Your parents own the recording, Peter. You're legally dead. You've been... I mean, no one's seen you since 1971, which is... Because I'm still not sure he's getting this. A really long time ago. For you. He shrugs. Well, yeah, before I was even born, I want to say. But he's up again, to the corner of the room that serves as my kitchen. Lifts something from his pocket onto the counter. Why didn't you eat the meat? He asks. I take a big sip from the second glass and hold it in my mouth to buy some time. At least this explains how he knew. Must have heard the music playing from the cottage. Followed me back somehow. I can't imagine him driving. Apparently my answer was optional because he's busy opening the newspaper parcel, the white of it pinking where the blood must be pooling. Let's talk over dinner. And he already has the oven lit. My poverty being such that even a man absent from society for almost 50 years can apparently work my primitive stove. No vegetables? I attempt while he's plating up thick marbled slices, medium rare. There's bread. And he gestures towards my three-day-old budget loaf that doesn't seem tempted himself. I want to ask what kind of meat it is, but cooked it looks, more or less, like any other joint. You want to know where I've been? He starts, handing me mine. No shit, I think, gingerly cutting a hunk from the end. When I came to the cottage, I was at the end. There was no getting away from it. I could neither pour out all my pain and hope the emptiness after was better, or I could lie, basically, to myself and everyone, write some nice songs, songs saying sorry, songs that might even make some money. Then I could die. Maybe that sounds dramatic, but I was young then, and as you may know if you've dealt with my parents... My childhood hadn't done much to ground me. Things were beautiful or terrible. With my love lost, life was unlivable. Death, even if only an end to pain, felt preferable. But first, I had to get the songs out. I didn't want to rot with my seeds still inside me. The cottage was mine for a month. So I recorded, and I recorded, and even to me, even then, it all sounded small, petty, ultimately forgettable. The first week passed, and I couldn't kill myself, could I? Even started to worry the police might find me first. My parents would have no problem reporting the theft, I knew that. It says something about my state that 
When the food parcels started turning up on the doorstep, I didn't even question their origin. I almost hoped some farmer would finally arrive to request payment, only to find his food eaten and me hanging. But it wasn't a farmer that came calling. The only supplies I'd brought myself were... Sorry, but it's true. Ten tins of soup and five bottles of whiskey. I went through two bottles the first week, which meant I had two left to finish the record. As determined as I was, the fifth bottle was reserved for what I would do when I was... done. Enough whiskey, and I could summon enough emotion to... well, you know, push through. The recordings got a little better after I strung up the noose. Singing looking up at it gave my voice more weight. But my second Sunday morning there, deep in a raging hangover, I dropped my guitar on the stone floor. And the woman hanging from my noose locks eyes with me and smiles. The man behind me puts his hand over my mouth so my scream is hardly heard. A hunk of pinkish flesh frozen on my fork. I mouth, what the fuck, to the back of Jane Bellow's head. She can't talk from the noose, so wiggles free, quite gracefully. He's still holding me, both dressed like my parents in black and white photos, the 40s. There's not even any redness to her neck, and up close she smells of mold, of leaves, of riverbeds. You can guess the rest. I strongly express, aided by three emptied glasses, the opinion that I shall not guess and he will finish. But it's like he's not asleep, but hollowed out, still as a statue. They're, what, ghosts? Is that what you're saying? His eyes have slid to the floor. And it was them on your record. Those sounds that no one can figure out. Not just them. He says. They only opened the door. They were just the last in the chain. I put my cutlery down on the half-empty plate, feeling increasingly queasy. And what did the meat have to do with it? It was their meat. He mumbles. Obviously. Finally. Carved from their body. Did you just serve me? And I have no plans to finish that sentence. He shakes his head slowly. Okay. That's me on your plate, he says. And his hand flashes forward to clamp my mouth, so my scream is hardly heard. It's maybe ten minutes before we can talk meaningfully again. There was a whole thing where I decided it might be best to exit by the first floor window, 
but his hands lock around my wrists, rooting me to the centre of the room. And it's only now, held so close, I see the pale bloom of lichen spreading from one ear, the insects in the twitch of his hair. It's only in feeling him against me that I can finally believe he's not breathing. Anyway, they weren't ghosts. They're forest folk. Hidden people. Hidden people. Hidden people. Hidden people. The couple were only the latest to go into the green. They'd only been there twenty-something years themselves. But they heard my music as a cry for help, and they blocked the exits, and they said, That which eats must be eaten. I had a choice. Into the green, like them, or into the black. They'd kill you? They'd help, if I chose to. Make it fast. You're not just here for your record. That which eats must be eaten. Peter, I, I, I didn't eat the meat. I can push the parts back together on the plate. Nothing's missing. And I could swear there's more than just him looking out through his eyes. A whole crowd sharing his smile. I know, they say. It doesn't matter. You listened to our music. You took what was offered. You can't live in this world any longer. When you say the green... That's where I am now. That's what I am now. I... I don't know if I follow. You will. Think about a song. Even a simple song is hundreds of notes. How many trees in a forest? And I remember the life of Peter Wood. I do. But also every hour of every insect clicking through me. Every growth through my dark. Sometimes I think I'm too many small and creeping things to count, just dreaming they're a man. Does it hurt? Of course it hurts. And when he says that, I see something moving in his mouth. Something pale, almost as big as his tongue, escaping down his throat from the light his lips let in. Peter Wood was a nightmare. He wanted everyone to know his name. He wanted them to stop what they were doing and not just listen to him. He wanted them to feel what he was feeling. He was sick. He'd rather sing to himself than see the world. But when he ate, when he was eaten, he was released. Time to choose. You can stop being the center of your life or... What if I refuse? I can leave you, if you like. But the process has already begun. Where do you think the Beatles are coming from? 
My throat itches. My skin bumps. And I sit, suddenly heavy with everything too real. And a dry heave. That's natural. I'm nodding with the weight of all that's not me inside me. Peter, if all this is... is there... after the... black, is there, like... the white, or... I mean, like, life after, or... Couldn't tell you. I didn't go that way. But, okay, the couple who came to you... Made their choice in the wilderness when they couldn't find their way back. Ate. And were eaten. Time to choose. Where are they now? Nora and Ben? They're with your engineer. Into the green, or into the black. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. 
please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.